Well, good morning, 10 o'clock. How are you guys this morning? I guess <laughs> redneck preaching. I own that. My name is Josh Brooker. I've not got a chance to meet you. I hail from the metropolitan area of Woodbury, Tennessee. <clears throat> um, if you're not laughing, it's because you just moved from California. You have no idea where that is. <laughs> so uh, you can take your Bible and turn to John chapter 18 with us this morning. John 18, I pastor the campus in Cannon County. And uh, it's a little like being back to my old high school this morning because I was here in Murfreesboro for about seven years. And then I was sent out to Woodbury in 2017. I've been there ever since. But man, it's so cool to see so many of you guys I recognize and so many more that uh, I have not yet met. So it's cool. We've been in John's Gospel since January uh, with all of our campuses. And uh, we are now at the climax of John's Gospel. Jesus is about to go to the cross. And one of the things we saw that he did in John 17 before he goes to the cross is Jesus spends an entire chapter praying for his disciples. Not just for those who are there with him in the city of Jerusalem, but he said he was praying for those who would come after, who would believe in him because of their testimony. And so one of the things we said last week is, Jesus prayed for you that night. And, and we ask ourselves this question, are we answering the prayer of Jesus? And the answer for that is yes, if we are glorifying Jesus, working for Jesus, and satisfied in Jesus. And so we turn to chapter 18, where we will be this morning. And chapter 18 is the account of Jesus's betrayal, his arrest, and his trial. There's a lot of injustice that happens in chapter 18. There's a lot of suffering that happens in chapter 18. There's a lot of frustration and failure that we're gonna read about in chapter 18, but through it all, Jesus does not go to the cross as a victim. He doesn't go to the cross as a martyr. Jesus goes to the cross as a sovereign savior. He's in control of the whole thing. And if that was true for everything that happened on this night that we'll read about this morning, how much more true is that in your life? If you're facing injustice or suffering or you've got unanswered questions and you're wondering, man, is God in control? I want to assure you this morning, he is in control. The question is, do you trust him? So if you have a Bible, John 18 is where we will be before we dive into the text. Let's pray together. Father God, all across the room this morning, <coughs> and much as we know how, we want to clear our minds and clear our hearts and prepare ourselves to receive your word. Lord, we pray against every distraction that maybe we came in here with. Anything that maybe we're holding on to, anything that maybe we've set up in our lives above you, Lord, we, we just want to bow the knee before you and say, Jesus, you are king and your word is truth. And we ask for the humility and the wisdom to receive your word at face value, whatever it is that you would say to us. We pray, God, you would give us the courage to obey it. Keep your hand on every church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Thank you for the many wonderful churches in this community. I pray, God, that you would help us to be united under one name, the name Jesus. Be with us now as we read your word. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 18, starting at verse 1. <clears throat> After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, 
Who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you, I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said. I have not lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? So the scene opens in chapter 18 on the night before Jesus will go to the cross. And he's there in the city of Jerusalem with his disciples. John includes very interesting detail that Jesus crosses the Kidron Valley on the way to a certain garden. And history tells us that Jesus would have had to step over a stream. And in that stream, blood from the altar in the temple would have drained. And because this is the week of Passover, here's what we know. Thousands of lambs had been slaughtered that week. And so Jesus is quite literally stepping over the blood of Passover lambs. Jesus himself being the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover, the Lamb of God. And as we are covered with his blood, death passes over us. And as Jesus crosses this particular valley, no doubt he's remembering King David. In 2 Samuel 15, we're told that King David crossed this valley after his son Absalom betrayed him. Jesus is betrayed on this night. He's not betrayed uh, by Absalom, he's betrayed by Judas, his spiritual, <coughs> his spiritual son. And Judas chooses a, a very um, intimate place to betray Jesus. It's a place where Jesus would meet with his disciples often. John tells us that. It's a garden. Other gospel accounts tell us it was the Garden of Gethsemane, a real place. And Jesus would go there with his disciples to pray and to spend time together. And Gethsemane quite literally means oil press. If you read Luke's gospel, we see Jesus in such agony on this night that as he's praying, he's beginning to sweat and he's sweating blood that he himself is pressed under the agony and the suffering of what awaits him on the cross. And then Judas, the betrayer, shows up. And he shows up with a company of soldiers and the temple police and they're armed with lanterns and torches and weapons. If you have in your mind a group of eight to 10 guys that are there to arrest Jesus, get that out of your mind because the word that John uses to describe how many people were there in that company is a word where scholars estimate it could mean anywhere from 200 to 400 men. They've come expecting a fight. Here is this miracle-working rabbi named Jesus, and they've tried to arrest him many times, but he somehow miraculously evaded their arrest. John tells us in every time that it's because Jesus' time had not yet come. So who's really in control? God is in control of this situation, not the people trying to arrest Jesus. But they're expecting a fight. They're expecting an extended search. But chapter 18 is best summarized in verse four. And verse four tells us that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. And so they don't have to come looking for Jesus and they don't have to pull him away from his disciples. No, Jesus approaches the group and he asks them, who do you seek? And they reply, we're looking for Jesus 
of Nazareth, to which Jesus responds quite remarkably. In our English Bible, <coughs> our English Bible, it says, I am he, but in the original Greek, the pronoun he is missing. We've just added that in our translation because it flows in English. You know what he's quite literally saying? I am. I am. And, and John says when he says that, the company of soldiers in Judas, they fall back. They physically cannot stand up as he proclaims the word, I am. Now, what in the world is going on with that? Well, what Jesus is proclaiming is the divine unspeakable name of God. If you go back to Exodus 3.14, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush and says to Moses, I want you to go to the land of Egypt and I want you to set my people free and lead them to the promised land. And Moses says, well, who, who shall I say sent me? And God says, I am that I am that I'm not defined by your perception of me. I am, I've always been, I will always be. I myself am transcendent, I am that I am. This is the name that Jesus is proclaiming to these soldiers and Judas. And there's so much power in Jesus's divine majesty that these men could not phys physically stand before him as he proclaims those words. <coughs> Sometimes I'm bothered by the very casual and cavalier attitude we have in the American church concerning the person of Jesus Christ. We, we, we make him less almighty, eternal, I am, and we make him more a, a, a buddy that we call out on. Uh, one of these days I'm gonna write a book called Morgan Wallen and Jesus because that, that brother has some, some weird theology concerning Jesus. Some of you are like, who's that? I'm in church, right? Um, shut up. Because I mean, I'm serious. Like his new album, this is just a side note, but I'm from Woodbury so I can talk about this stuff. Um, it's about three things. It's about getting drunk, getting high, sleeping around, and Jesus. True? Some of you are like, I've never heard it. Shut up. Yeah. And man, this is kind of the approach we have, right? That Jesus is just like you. He's just like me. He's just kind of like my buddy. He's hanging out. And listen, he's not just like your buddy. When John sees Jesus in his glory in Revelation chapter one, he sees Jesus in his glory and his eyes are like lightning. His hair is like wool. His voice sounds like the rushing of many waters. And he says, I fell down on my face like a dead man. That his power and his glory is far greater than you and I sometimes give him credit for being. But here's what's amazing. This group is cowering in fear. I kind of find it comical. Jesus walks up to the group again and says, hey, who, who are you seeking? <laughs> and I said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I'm he. I told you I'm he. So here I am. I'm the person you're looking for. Just let these men go. And John tells us this is a fulfillment of Jesus' words that none of his disciples would be lost. And so Jesus willingly surrenders. But there's one disciple that doesn't quite get that memo. His name is Simon Peter. Simon Peter is the disciple who pulls out his sword and he starts to try to fight the group, <coughs> which is very interesting and a little sad to me that he's one guy, he's probably trying to go against 200 to 400 soldiers. And uh, some of us, we read that and we're like, yeah, Simon Peter. You know, all that tells us that he cut a dude's ear off. He's a horrible shot. That's all that tells us. <laughs> he's not aiming for the guy's ear. He's aiming for the guy's neck or the guy's skull and he misses. Like Jesus doesn't need Peter's help, right? Just like Jesus doesn't need your help in a lot of the battles that Jesus is fighting. 
Peter is so shocked and so scared, he impulsively tries to defend Jesus, but Jesus doesn't need his help. Jesus isn't a victim. Jesus isn't a martyr. Jesus was, Jesus is, Jesus always will be the great I am. And he says to Peter, put away your sword. Am I not to drink the cup of suffering from the Father? Jesus is going to the cross as a willing volunteer. That the betrayal The arrest, as horrible and painful as those things are, they are all according to God's plan for Jesus. Why? So he could willingly die the death that your sins deserve. So you could be given forgiveness of sins and atonement for your sin. Let's keep going. Look, if you will, at verse 12. Then the company of soldiers, the commander... And the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and tied him up. First, they led him to Annas, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be better for one man to die for the people. Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter remained standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, the one known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the girl who was the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who was the doorkeeper said to Peter, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? I am not, he said. Now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves and Peter was standing with them warming himself. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus answered him. I've always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews gather, and I haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. When he'd said these things, one of the officials standing by slapped Jesus, saying, is this the way you answer the high priest? If I've spoken wrongly, Jesus answered him, give evidence about the wrong. But if rightly, why do you hit me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said to him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Peter denied it again. Immediately, a rooster crowed. So Annas was not the official high priest. He was actually the father-in-law to Caiaphas. And here's how it works. Being a high priest was a lifetime appointment. There weren't term limits. So at some point for Caiaphas to be the high priest while Annas was still alive, Annas would have had to step aside and appoint Caiaphas as the high priest in his stead. Most scholars think that what Annas was doing is he was kind of the one behind the scenes running the business side of things that happened on the Temple Mount and letting Caiaphas run the religious side. And there was a really unholy, uh, messy mixture of commerce and religion happening on the Temple Mount. And how many of you know that Jesus was bad for business on the Temple Mount? He had disrupted all the things that were happening with the money changers and the people selling animals in the Temple Mount. So we can understand why Annas probably wants to have a few words with Jesus. So Jesus is brought in, he's presumed guilty before the religious and financial power brokers of the day. And then the scene shifts to Simon Peter and another disciple who is probably John. 
And they're allowed entrance into the high priest's courtyard because John tells us there was a personal connection that this other disciple, who's probably John, had with the doorkeeper. And so the two disciples, they're standing, <coughs> warming themselves by this fire, and the servant girl, who was also the doorkeeper, recognized them. She asked, are you a disciple of Jesus? And then we see Peter's response, and it's a bit shocking and disappointing. Peter is caught off guard, and he denies that he's a disciple of Jesus. And some of us reading this, man, we're like, how could he? I mean, he was just with Jesus. He heard Jesus praying for him. He was just with Jesus in the upper room. How could he deny he knew Jesus? Well, there's a couple of very obvious reasons for why Peter would deny Jesus. The first is human weakness. You know, Jesus had warned Peter of this moment in John 13. You remember this? That Jesus had told all of his disciples that you're all going to fall away. And you remember what Peter did? He said, no, not me. He said, all these other guys, sure, but not me. I'm not going to deny you. I will die for you, Jesus. But in the frailty of his own weakness, he gave in. And how many times has that been you? And how many times has that been me? Or we deny our ability to fall to a certain thing. We think we're somehow exempt from it. We're immune from it. We say, well, other people have had that struggle in their marriage, but not my marriage. I'm not going to ever do that. And then we find ourselves doing the very thing that we denied we were ever capable of doing. That every one of us have weakness in our lives and we can't deny the weakness. We can't say that we don't have the weakness. We all have a propensity to do one sinful or foolish thing that could destroy everything we care the most about. But Peter denies that. And in human weakness, he gives in. And the other reason for Peter's denial is fear. Because if Jesus is arrested and he's about to be condemned to death, Peter's thinking, well, I might be next. And listen, some of you are judging Peter for denying Jesus out of fear, but if you're honest with yourself, you've been denying Jesus in your workplace, you've been denying Jesus on the college campus where you attend classes, and you've been denying Jesus in your family for a long time. You see the way that Christians are ostracized and marginalized and called dumb and called bigoted and called this and called that. And for fear of someone doing that to you, you've decided silence is the best option. And so you're not speaking up for Jesus. You're not sharing your faith. You're not letting it be known that you're a disciple of Jesus. And for the same reason that Peter denied Jesus, you're doing the exact same thing. The scene shifts back to Jesus standing before Annas. He's the former high priest. John calls him the high priest. And Annas wants to know about Jesus' disciples and doctrine. And Jesus' response is that he didn't have a secret doctrine. He didn't have a hidden agenda with his disciples. He says, why don't you just ask someone that heard me teach? Everyone who has heard me teach has heard me proclaim openly what I stand for. Everybody knows what I've taught who's heard me teach. Now, Jesus isn't being uncooperative or salty. Um, Jesus is simply asserting his own legal rights. And in so doing, he's actually exposing the hypocrisy and the injustice that's happening at this mock trial. See, in Jewish law, there was not supposed to be any formal charge brought against the accused until witnesses had first been heard. Do you know why Jesus knows so much about the Jewish law? Because he himself was the one who gave the people of Israel the law, right? Yep. 
And so he exposes their hypocrisy. He exposes the fact that they're not actually following the law. This isn't much of a trial at all. There's injustice happening. And in response, he's slapped. And the God of all creation is accused of disrespect. Oh, the irony. And they send him bound to Caiaphas for more questioning. And meanwhile, the scene shifts back to Peter at the fire. Someone asks, are you a disciple of Jesus? Gospel of Matthew says they heard Peter's Galilean accent. And so they said, you speak like a Galilean. Are you a disciple of Jesus? He denies it. Then a third person who's related to Malchus, the one whose ear Peter cut off, recognizes Peter and asks him again, to which Peter denies a third time. And immediately, a rooster crows in the distance. Peter has done the very thing he swore to Jesus he wouldn't do. And if you've ever struggled with addiction in your life, you know exactly what that feels like. To do the one thing you swore to yourself, you swore to God, you swore to your spouse, you swore to the people around you you would never do, only to find that you did that very thing that you've tried so hard not to do and the feelings of remorse and the feelings of shame and the feelings of regret. Where you think to yourself, I cannot believe I did that. I cannot believe, what does this mean now? And the saddest part about this story is how sure of himself Peter had been. He'd been so sure of his own loyalty to Jesus, but what he failed to recognize was the weakness of his own flesh. And so often that's many of us in this room. You know what Peter should have done when Jesus told Peter that he had a propensity to fail in this area is he should have humbled himself. He should have said, oh God, I need your strength. I can't stand on my own. I need your wisdom. I need your strength. I need the things that you can give me, but that's not what he did. Instead, he relied on his own strength. And there are many of us that are setting ourselves up for epic falls because what we're doing right now is we're trying to live the Christian life on our own strength. And we're saying to ourselves, it's just lunch with a coworker. I've never had that problem in my marriage. I'm not gonna fall to that. And we're setting ourselves up to fall to that. It's just going to the bar with some buddies. I know in the past I had a problem with that, but not tonight. It's all good. I'll never fall to that. And you're setting yourself up to fall for that. And some of us, we miss the point of the entire exercise. We think that coming to church is all about puffing out our chest and talking about how spiritual we are. And I used to struggle with this, but praise God, I don't anymore. But I'm here for all you sinners who are struggling with that sin that I don't anymore. I've graduated to greener pastures, praise God. Anytime somebody does that, it's just a giant indicator light blinking of their own spiritual immaturity. Listen to me. You are not as strong as you think you are. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Here is what spiritual maturity looks like. It is growing less confident in ourselves and growing more desperately dependent upon God. And that is one of the greatest spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. That as we continue to grow in our faith, we become less confident in who we are apart from him and we become more desperate. We can honestly say, God, I need you more right now than I needed you yesterday and I will need you more tomorrow than I need you right now. Let's look at this next part. Look at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas 
to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves. Otherwise, they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and said, what charge do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate told them, you take him and judge him according to your law. It's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said this so that Jesus's words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied, your own nation and the chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this and I have come into the world for this to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth? Said Pilate. Pontius Pilate is a fascinating figure, not just from the gospel accounts, but also from history. He was the Roman governor of this province of Judea for about 10 years. And John tells us that Jesus is brought to the Praetorium in Jerusalem, Pilate's headquarters. And he's brought there bound by the temple guards. Interestingly, the Jewish leaders would not enter into the building themselves because Pilate was a Gentile and they were Jews. And if they entered into the house of a Gentile, they would defile themselves and not be able to eat the Passover meal. This is the most glaring example of religious hypocrisy in chapter 18. Here's a group of people who are trying to condemn an innocent man to be crucified on a cross. They're breaking their own law. They're manipulating the system. We could even say they're being dishonest. And yet what they're most concerned about is ceremonial purity. And if you've ever been around religious hypocrisy, this doesn't surprise you because you've probably seen this many times. Hashtag shiny happy people, but that's another story. PTSD talking about that. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so Pilate asked the religious leaders, why are you bringing him to me? And they sidestepped the question. They said, well, if you weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him over to you, right? And so Pilate is sitting on top of a powder keg in the city of Jerusalem. History tells us that Pilate had been responsible for trying to squash many uprisings in this region of the Roman Empire. And he was accused of anti-Semitism, that he would try to stop these rebellions amongst the Jews with very violent means. And so one more uprising from the Jews and his job could be on the line or his life could be on the line. And so Pilate isn't really interested in interfering with matters of Jewish law. He says, you take him, you try him according to your own law. But in verse 31, the religious leaders play their hand. They want to have Jesus killed and they want the Romans to do it for them. They don't have the authority to do that anymore. And then John whispers to us in this text that this was said so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. If the Jews did have the authority to kill Jesus, 
the means by which capital punishment would have been carried out would have been stoning, not crucifixion. But the prophet Isaiah said that the suffering servant Messiah who was to come, he would be pierced for our transgressions. Jesus himself in John 3 said to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus said in John 12 that he would be lifted up and all men would be drawn to him, that he would die on a cross. And so even in his method and the mode by which he will die, Jesus is reigning and ruling sovereignly even over that. So Pilate is faced with a dilemma. So he decides he's gonna ask Jesus some questions himself. So he brings him in and says, are you a king? And then we see Jesus's response. He has a few questions for Pilate himself. He says, are you really wanting to know if I'm a king? Or are you just asking on behalf of the others? What is Jesus doing? He is loving this pagan Gentile king. He's after his heart. Pilate says, I'm not a Jew. Your own people want you dead. What in the world have you done? Are you a king? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus is admitting to being a king because if you've got a kingdom, that means like you're a king. But Jesus' kingdom was not a rival political kingdom. His kingdom was and his kingdom still is not of this world. His kingdom is bigger than the kingdoms of this world. His kingdom is bigger than Rome. His kingdom is bigger than any empire that has ever existed. If Jesus wanted to, he could say the words and his servants could call the whole thing off. In other gospels, he says to one of his disciples, if I wanted to, I could send a legion of angels and the whole thing could be stopped. Pilate thinks he holds the fate of Jesus in his hands, but in the midst of it all, Jesus is ruling and reigning sovereignly over everything. And Jesus begins to speak of truth. He says in verse 37, I was born for this and I've come into the world for this to testify of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That if we listen to the voice of truth, we will see the kingdom where Jesus rules and reigns. It's an invisible kingdom now, but you can see that kingdom if you listen to the truth of Jesus. And when you listen to the truth of Jesus, here's what it says. He is king, not you. And when you surrender to his rule and reign in your life, that's when you see the kingdom of heaven. The problem is there are many of us that want to go to heaven when we die, but we really don't care if Jesus is there when we get there. We want the kingdom of heaven, but we don't want to surrender our will to the king of heaven. What we want is to use Jesus to get a magic golden ticket to heaven and then to continue to live however we want with ourselves as king over our own lives. And that's not how that works. Jesus will not be your butler. He is your king. And if you want the kingdom of heaven, you've got to bow your knee to the king of heaven. So there's truth embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Speaking of a kingdom that is invisible now, but is coming. And one day when it does come, it will shatter every other kingdom on earth. And Pilate looks at Jesus and coldly retorts, truth. What is truth? Pilate responds like a Roman. And to a Roman political figure, might is right. In other words, history is written by the winners. Truth gets defined by the civilization with the biggest army and the wisest generals. 
Rome is the one who decides which gods you should worship. Rome is the one that decides what is moral and what is not moral. Rome is the one that decides if this is a sexual ethic that works and if this is not one that works. What is truth? And how many in our civilization and our culture ask the same question? Many of us are asking that question this morning. Some of us, we expect an answer and we try to get really philosophical with the answer. Others of us, we expect there can be no answer. What is truth? Well, you live your truth, I'll live my truth and your truth works for you and my truth works for me. And we wonder why we're perhaps the most confused generation in all of human history. What is truth, we ask. And in this day and age, we bend and we change what is right and what is wrong to conveniently fit with what we want to believe and how we want to live. And we open the word of God and instead of bowing our knee to the king of heaven and saying what he says is true, I'm gonna listen to the voice of truth. We say, I will be the one that decides what is true and I will be the one that decides what not is true. And because I don't like that, it's not true. And can I just let you in a little secret? It doesn't matter if you don't like it. It doesn't change if it's true or not. I don't like gravity. Gravity doesn't care, right? <laughs> so there's truth embodied standing before Pilate. And Jesus tells him and tells you and tells me how to find truth. He says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Can I ask you a question? Are you listening to the voice of Jesus? Are you listening to his word? I'm not asking, do you know some Bible verses? I'm not asking, are you in church? Good job, you're in church. I'm asking, are you listening? If you don't know how to answer that, I'm going to ask you a question. Are you doing what he says? Because if you're not doing what he says, you're not listening. If you want to see the kingdom of heaven, if you want to know the king of heaven, if you want to know the truth, you got to listen to the truth. Let's look at this last part. Look at verse 38. After he had said this, he went to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. You have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? <clears throat> they shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a revolutionary so Pilate finds no cause for capital punishment in this case. So he's trying to appease this crowd by offering another approach to try to get Jesus released. And so he's going to offer the crowd the release of another prisoner named Barabbas in the place of Jesus. And the text tells us that Barabbas was a robber. He was a murderer. He was a violent revolutionary and insurrectionist. This is a bad man who has done bad things and he deserves to die. And he's a prisoner in the city of Jerusalem. He's probably slated to die on a cross on Good Friday along with two other prisoners. And so the choice of these two prisoners seems very, very, very clear. There's Jesus, the miracle working rabbi who has never done anything wrong. He's healed people. He's taught people how to live with each other and how to know the truth of God. And there's Barabbas, the thief, the murderer, the violent insurrectionist. And the crowd shouts out, give us Barabbas. And even though I couldn't see it then, this is a perfect picture of the gospel. 
the guilty man goes free and the sinless one was condemned. Who's Barabbas? You're Barabbas. I'm Barabbas. Because of our sin, we we stand on death row guilty before God and we are condemned to die as punishment for our sin. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes this abundantly clear that in order to have a savior, we've got to have something that we need saving from. And we are Barabbas. We are guilty. We deserve the judgment of God because we've done it. But Jesus, the innocent, willingly gives his life for us, the guilty, so that we can be set free. And Jesus takes our cross and he walks up to Golgotha and we go free. And we understand that we did nothing to deserve it. So our salvation is free for us, but it was not cheap. It cost Jesus his life. But Jesus' death satisfies the demands of God's perfect justice. And Jesus shed his blood in our place. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ invites you and I to trust in the reality that Jesus got what you deserved so you could have freedom, you could have forgiveness, and you can have eternal life. And Jesus doesn't die as a victim. Jesus doesn't die as a martyr or some sort of a social and political activist, and that's why he was killed. No, that's not why Jesus dies. Jesus went to the cross as the only innocent, sinless one, willingly, and he did it for you, the guilty, that did nothing to deserve it, that did nothing to earn it, but that's the extent of his love for you. So what shall we say to these things? So we read John 18, what does it tell us about God? Well, the first thing it tells us about God is this, God's redemptive plan cannot be stopped. As we read John 18, we read about a lot of injustice. This trial is not really a trial. There's so much injustice that happens. And yet through it all, Jesus is still in control. And maybe in your life, there's a lot of injustice happening. In our world, there's a lot of injustice happening. Some of us, we look at the injustice happening in our world, the injustice happening in our lives, and we say, what in the world is going on? God, are you still listening to the prayers of your people? Do you still see what we're walking through and going through? And I want to remind you this morning that there's a God in heaven who is still ruling and reigning over everything. He's in control. There's a lot of suffering that we're going to see as we get into chapter 19 and chapter 20. And yet the day on which Jesus suffers the most That Friday, when we remember it every year, we call it Good Friday. And in your life, when you're suffering and it doesn't feel good, the temptation is to think, well, this doesn't feel good, so therefore God must not be good. But often what happens in our lives is that God takes those moments of greatest pain and he redeems them. And so those moments of our deepest pain and our greatest suffering we understand later that God was doing something redemptive and beautiful in the midst of that. And you may not feel his goodness in the moment, but I want to remind you and assure you that there is a greater plan at work right now that cannot be stopped, and he is still good. We see a lot of failure in John 18. We see Peter, he's once, twice, three times a failure. 
Lionel never wrote that song, but that's how Peter fails, right? That's stupid. And man, if we just had John 18 in our Bible and that was the only thing we read about Peter, it might be tempting to go, well, Peter's done. See ya, Peter. It's nice knowing you. But that's not how the story ends for Peter. Chapter 21, we see Jesus restoring Peter. For every time Peter denied Jesus, Jesus gives Peter a restoration. And then we see Peter in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. He becomes the rock and the leader of the early church. And maybe you're thinking right now, because of your failures, that you're done. Man, I had a chance to serve God. God did have a purpose for me, but I blew it royally. I, I'm not ever going to be used by him ever again. That is a lie from the pit of hell. God is not done with you. God can still use you. And God wants to restore you. This tells us God doesn't need your weapons <coughs> to fight his battles. Some of us are like Peter in that we see the injustice in our lives, the suffering of those around us. And instead of trusting God <coughs> to fight those battles, we take out our sword and we start hacking. But God doesn't need your help. <laughs> the great invitation of the life of discipleship is to put away your sword and take up your cross. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 says, the weapons of our warfare are not flesh and blood. And we know that Jesus is a sovereign savior. He's in control the whole time. Nothing takes him off guard. Nothing surprises him. He's not a victim. He's, a, he's not a martyr. He's a savior. So if Jesus is a savior, here's what it means. Jesus died for sinners and you're a sinner. You're a sinner by both your very nature, you were born into sin, just like I was, and you're a sinner by your own choices. And unless the blood of Jesus covers you for your sin, you stand under the wrath of God and you will be judged for your sin. But if in me saying that, you got deeply offended because you said, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm basically a good and moral person. Well, then congratulations. The death of Jesus on your behalf was all for naught and you don't need Christianity. Thanks for playing. The whole point is that you are a sinner. You are broken. I am broken. We are not good moral people. We need a sovereign savior who can redeem and fix and restore us because we can't do it for ourselves. And when you humble yourself and you receive that from him, it's an invitation for you and I to stop pretending like we've got it all together and to admit our sin and to admit that we need him. And some of you are exhausted because you know you're not a moral good person. You know you're broken and you need God, but you're trying to convince the people around you that you've got it all together. And that's an exhausting way to live. But when you admit that you're a sinner, that's when you open your heart and your life up to the good news that Jesus died for sinners. And Jesus loves sinners. He didn't just die for sinners. Jesus specializes in restoring deniers. Isn't that good news? Any recovering deniers in the house this morning? If you didn't raise your hand, that's a denial. So, gotcha. <clears throat> you just denied that you ever denied. Yeah, some of us were denying that we have any spiritual weakness at all. And in so doing, we're setting ourselves up for more failure. 
Some of us, we've denied him in the past and we think that, man, because I've denied him in the past, he wants nothing to do with me right now in the present. That's not true. But you and I are strongest spiritually when we stop denying that we're weak and we're broken. And when we start growing increasingly dependent on him and every day that passes, we understand that's just another moment for everything in our life to be turned around by the power of the gospel. Grace is where we get things from God that we could never earn, and yet he pours it out on us lavishly. And the things from God that we could never earn are forgiveness and restoration. My daughter is five years old. She thinks she's 35 years old, but she's five years old. And she didn't have a good day on Friday. She had a really tough day. We'd spent many nights staying up way too late this week, blowing things up. And... Um, she didn't have a good day Friday, man. It was, it was tough. She had some discipline problems and all that stuff. And so her name is Grace. I'm tucking her in the other night and she looks at me and she says, Daddy, I didn't have a good day today. I said, I don't know, baby. I said, you know what your name means? I said, Grace is when we get things that we don't deserve. I said, and here's the amazing part about Grace. Every new day, his mercies are new. I said, baby, today wasn't a good day, but tomorrow's another day. And listen, some of you have had bad days. You've had bad years. And you've believed the lie that God wants nothing to do with you because you've had bad days and bad years and you've done bad things. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus died for bad people. and he restores us, and he recreates us, and he does it through mercy, and he does it through love, and he's sovereign over the whole thing. Do not believe the lie that God has done with you, because every moment in your life that passes by is just another moment for the power and the grace and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ to turn everything in your life around for his glory and for your good. And that's grace. So Father God, I'll cross this room. We need you now more than we've ever needed you before. We need a revelation of your goodness and grace. We don't just need to know it in our heads. We need to know it in our hearts. Thank you, Jesus, for your sovereign plan of redemption that cannot be stopped. Some of us, we see injustice and suffering and we're confused and we don't know how you can still be good. But Lord, remind us this morning that you're in control and you're always good. Some of us, Lord, we've denied you through our lifestyle. We've denied you through our silence. But Lord, thank you that you specialize in restoring deniers. Give us the grace to not run from you, but to run to you. Help us to humble ourselves and receive the grace that you extend. Thank you for showing us your love and that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. We love you, we praise you, we bless you, and we thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we ask all this. We get an amazing privilege this morning of coming to the table and taking the bread and taking the cup. It's a reminder of Jesus and his blood that was spilled and his body that was broken. Please, please, please listen to me. 
the worst thing that could happen to you this morning is not for you to not come to church. It's for you to come to church, for God to speak to your heart through his word, and then for you to be in such a hurry to get out of here that you miss what God wants to do in this moment. You've been given an invitation from the God of all creation to come to the table, to take the bread, to take the cup, to remember what he's done for you. So anywhere you see a lamp on a table, that's your invitation to go to the table and to get the bread and to get the cup and to observe communion. If you need prayer for anything, there's folks on my right, your left, there's Savut standing by the right of the stage. If you have questions or anything at all, but this is a holy moment. Let's respond to what the Spirit's doing in this place. Amen. So Father God, as we respond to what you've spoken through your word, help us, Lord, not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers also. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. We ask all this in your name. Amen.